Blog Talk Radio. Organization. 
Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, I think what was put up is by the headline that you quoted, which I hadn't seen in those precise terms, what the National uh, Catholic Bishops Organization, the USCCB, has an organization or a subcommittee on religious freedom and liberty and all that you just talked about. And uh, a Bishop Laurie, who has been in Bridgeport, Connecticut, for a number of years as the bishop there, recently was... Uh, assigned to be in Baltimore, uh, which gives him a certain amount of prestige because Baltimore, being the first diocese in America back in the 19th century, uh, has a long-standing history. And so the USCCB, again, has been fairly active trying to get their perspective out with regard to the whole issue that we've been talking about for the past three or four months, I guess, but maybe for several years, too with the whole issue of certain organizations like Catholic Charities who were doing work uh, in various areas and because of the uh, position in the Catholic Church with gay marriage and with children from parents, etc., uh, these issues have come to the fore. So I think the bishops really are just trying to emphasize in a an election year, if you will, right. to uh, galvanize rhetorical support. Well, let me, uh, we have to take a quick break to bring in our affiliates, and then we'll get back and continue this discussion. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Hebernan, and I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. Tampa, of course, is going to be the, the site of the Republican National Convention, and Ashland is always the site of the Great Shakespeare Festival. I'm co-hosting today's edition with uh, of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles. Chuck Morse is in Boston, and we are joined today, as we usually are on Tuesdays, by Deacon Michael Wanowitz of a Catholic uh, uh, Church of uh, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows Catholic Church in Sharon, Massachusetts. You can join us. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail dot com. And also, don't forget after the show, check out our website fairnessradio.com. And you can call us four two four six seven five sixty eight oh six. It's Religion Tuesday, and we were talking about a campaign that the Catholic bishops are going to kick off in um, just before July, in, in late June, um, complaining about some things that they say are infringements on their rights and that others uh, say are, uh, are necessary for the separation of church and state. And I, we just heard from Mike. And, Chuck, do you have uh, comments on this? Patrick, I think that you are suffering from an, a case of amnesia here. Uh, which which sometimes is the case on these issues. True. Um, we did interview recently mm -hmm. Rabbi Jonathan Klein from Clue, Los Angeles, right. clergy and lady, United for Economic Justice. And he, mm -hmm. along with other liberal rabbis and ministers, and apparently and some priests, very much get involved in public policy matters. Uh, we've also had other people on this program from a liberal perspective who get involved with public policy matters why is it that they are not trying to suppress our rights, but when someone takes a conservative position, which is to say that they don't want the state to be involved directly in their organization, in this case the organization being the Catholic Church, 
Why is that somehow taking away rights from somebody else or from you? Well, it has to do with the content. In this particular case, uh, the Catholic Church wants to continue receiving taxpayers' money for various things, but it doesn't want to go along with the taxpayers' rules. That's the basic difference. I'm, it's fine with me if, if, if the church uh, says, fine, we're not going to take any of the taxpayers' money for, uh, for our, our adoption agencies. We'll run them on our own, and we're not going to adopt with gay parents. But as soon as they start taking my money, they got to run by my rules, and my, my rules are everybody gets to adopt. It doesn't matter what they are. That's what the Constitution says. So this is hypocrisy on the part of the Catholic bishops. What Clue is doing is not hypocrisy at all. They're not taking any, any, any taxpayers' money. They're out using chari charitable money, looking trying to get put people back to work. Totally different situation. No, they are taking taxpayer money. I'm looking at the website right now, and some of their affiliates are involved with public agencies that take taxpayer money. Okay. They have a long list of people. Are, are um, they violating and, any taxpayers? Uh, any no, they're not, rules? and neither is the Catholic Church. And there's is. nothing in the Constitution well, that says that anybody has to adopt anybody. Uh, the fact is that uh, the, the groups that are involved with Clue and other left-wing organizations that are also religious uh, absolutely do um, affiliate with, and as part of their boards of directors, they have members of organizations that get taxpayer money. The difference is that they're, not, they're, they're taking liberal positions, like, for example, they want to have a fair wage law, which is a public policy matter, as opposed yeah. to a more conservative position. So I guess that my question to you is why is it okay for Clue of Los Angeles and not okay for the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, uh, well, well, first of all, um, finding jobs for people is not a left-wing position unless you're saying that conservatives don't want people to work. No, no, no. They, so I, I Patrick, let, let me be clear. They, did, right, they, be didn't clear. Say finding, they didn't say finding jobs for people. They are advocating a fair wage law in a community and amongst a certain group. It has nothing to do with finding jobs, and that may be a fine position or it may not. The point is it is a public policy, secular government position that okay. they are taking and that they are and they're getting funding. Uh, other arms of their organization, including the Hebrew Union College, gets public funding for various projects they're involved in. And I, and I don't have a problem with that. The problem, well, I, I, my I question either. to you is why, yeah, I know you don't, yeah. but my question to you is why then do you have a problem if it's Roman Catholic bishops basically taking positions that are exclusively relevant to their church? They're not telling the rest of the country that people, well, that, that the government, question, Chuck? yeah, sure. Yeah, um, uh, well, well, first of all, I just want to reiterate that uh, uh, Trying to see to it that that the, the economy provides enough jobs for people is not a left wing position. Now, right. as far as the Catholic Church goes, they, they want to exclude people based upon their religious their religious doctrine, and but they want to take taxpayers' money in order to do it. If they're running an adoption agency, the Constitution says that everybody gets the same government benefits. It doesn't matter if you're gay or not. You can't exclude gay parents from your adoption agency. If you want to exclude gay parents, that's fine, but you don't take taxpayers' money. The same thing goes for many of the other. Uh, the same thing goes for contraception. If you're going to take taxpayers' money in, in Medicaid and, and Medi-Cal, then you have to, again, abide by the Constitution, which says the government benefits go to everybody. You can't say, well, I'm sorry, we're going to give benefits to everybody, except this one benefit that we don't believe in. 
You, if yeah, you're going to take taxpayers' money, you follow the Constitution. Who yeah, where does it say the that's the Constitution? They're not trying to exclude anybody at all. They're, they're, they're not trying to say that we're not only going to give it to people who are Jewish. We're only going to give it to people who, who, are, who are straight. They're saying we work for everybody. The Catholic Church doesn't work who's for that, everybody. Who says that? Well, you're still interrupting me. The Catholic Church works for people that it thinks are okay, <clears throat> and it excludes people that it doesn't think are okay. We can't do that in this country. That's unconstitutional. And I'll give Mike where? an opportunity to say that I'm, where, but before I'm, I'm Mike not says anything, the Catholic Church. Where does it say in the Constitution that organizations have to be involved with various forms of adoption? Where in the U.S. Constitution? Where in the U.S. Constitution does it say that the government has to pay for any health services, particularly uh, contraception? I mean, I don't see anything. You've said that this is in the U.S. Constitution. Can you cite the yes. portion of the U.S. Constitution yes, that can. says that? I, okay. I, I can't. All government benefits uh, have to be equally distributed. Where in the Constitution does it say that? Um, uh, the Constitution doesn't say anything about government benefits. Patrick, are we reading the same Constitution? I have a copy in front of me of the Constitution of the United States. I don't see anything in there that says anything about government benefits. It's the it's the equal distribution clause. Where's that? I, I don't see. I see. I see an equal. I don't see the word equal distribution. If you're going to follow your logic, then the Catholic Church could, shouldn't be receiving any money for for its hospitals and any money for adoption. No, my logic is where in the Constitution does it say all of these things that you're conjuring up? That's the I'm logic I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. Then show the, me where it says it. Show me where the Constitution I, I will, says I will get that, that for anybody right has now, the right. I will get that. Thank for you. you. And I'm going to and follow want, up. And I want to ask. Um, uh, well, right now, however, we have to take a break. We can pick this up after uh, in the next hour because we have a guest waiting. So you listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates, and we'll be right back. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's Religion Tuesday. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. Uh, this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your place to go for information to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive and possibly toxic drugs. Well, Americans are increasingly doubting religion and God. A poll last December found, the Gallup poll last December found that 5% of Americans expressed a lot of doubt about God. That's up from less than 1% in 1950. Other surveys have found that that atheists in the United States have risen from 1.6% to 7% since, since 2007, and that 9% of those surveyed have said that they either doubt that God exists or are not sure if God exists. Now, this follows a decline in Christianity as a percentage of the population in the United States from a high of 89% in the 1970s to 78% last winter, according to the Pew Annual Survey of Religion in America. So, is increasing doubt about God and religion a problem? Is it a sign of weakening civilization, or is it sort of the normal evolution of a religiously diverse society? Or is healthy questioning lead to a stronger belief? 
Well, to answer this question, we turn to Andrea Dilly, who has just released a remarkable book chronicling her lifelong travel through a varied landscape of doubt, a book that both raises questions and tells a very entertaining story. Andrea was raised in Kenya, the daughter of Quaker missionaries. She's the author of Jesus Girls, Two, two Tales, True Tales of, gro- of Grown Up Female, Growing Up Female and, and Evangelical, and her documentary films have aired nationally on American public television. Andrea, welcome to Religion Tuesday on Fairness Radio. Thanks for having me on the show. Andrea, this is a memoir uh, written uh, by a, a woman far too young, frankly, to be writing a memoir. But um, (laughs) your life has been packed with adventure, from being raised in Africa to working in the entertainment business to being a film producer to hanging out with artists, all in the search of the answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? Well, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of that adventure and the nail-biter that you've written? Yeah, absolutely. It's basically a personal story about my struggle with faith. I was raised in the church, and then in my early 20s, right after college, I hit a crisis of faith, ended up leaving the church and really struggling with faith for a number of years and then coming to terms with it on my in my own way. And I won't give away the ending, but that's there? kind of the gist of the story. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, what, what, what church did you leave? You know, I I was raised in the Presbyterian Church, so that was the church that I left at the time that I really hit my crisis of faith and was really struggling. Okay, and your but your parents were Quakers. You know, they were Quaker, um, not formally but informally. They were what I would call Christian hippies back in the seventies. They looked and acted the part of hippies and were really involved in social justice causes, uh, but they weren't formally Quaker, but they did sign up with and serve under a Quaker organization for those many years that they were in Kenya. Okay, well, Garrison Keillor calls those people Unitarians, but I want to ask you, why flat tires? Why, do you, why is the title Faith and Other Flat Tires? That's a great question. I had so much fun coming up with the title. There's kind of a driving theme in the book. In fact, one of the scene that I start with in the introduction is this scene of me, 21 years old, struggling with faith, frustrated with the church. I take a butter knife from my mother's kitchen and go out to my car and chip off the Christian Jesus fish that my brother had put on the back bumper of the car. It was kind of a hand-me-down. And that moment sort of symbolizes where I'm at in my faith crisis. Those kinds of car-related themes really uh, kind of emerged throughout the story. So I wanted something that was car-related, pilgrimage-related, journey-related, <laughs> and the faith, the flat tire theme really was such a perfect image for what I went through in my faith crisis and just feeling like I was stranded on the side of the road in my faith. Well, it, you have many adventures, uh, both when you're stranded with flat tires and when you're driving along, and uh, one of them... Um, came early, and, and you describe it in your your chapter, Why Isn't God Like Eric Clapton, um, when you notice that the, uh, the concert goers at an Eric Clapton concert seem to be behaving much like uh, people in the pews in a charismatic church. Do, do you see a, um, a, a relationship between the kind of joy that people get out of music and a, and, and a religious experience? Yeah, it's such a great question. I still struggle with that question. I think, you know, for any of us who have uh, 
uh, live inside of a faith tradition, and even those who don't, you know, struggling to connect with God and with a spiritual expression in some ways is really complex. Music, I think the arts offer us a way to find that spiritual expression, um, but it's also an indication of kind of that frustration. I, in that moment, I tell this story, as you said, of watching this concert and saying, why doesn't God come and, and give a concert the way Eric Clapton does? Why isn't he embodied and easy to access uh, and, and someone that we can touch and hear and sing with uh, in the way that we can when we go to a concert? And that really gets after the problem of God's hiddenness. That's a you know a question that a lot of people struggle with. Why isn't God accessible? And I really wrestle with that question in the book, but the arts are certainly a way in which I think we can access God in some capacity. Well, you, you follow up that theme later on when you uh, you describe Radiohead um, as one of your favorite bands. Maybe we should have you on our Music Friday segment, too. Um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, there have been a number of studies recently, one of them actually by a friend of mine um, who does brain research, that, that indicates that the religious experience actually resides in the hypothalamus and that it generates the same kind of um, brain activity that music does and that, uh, frankly, that, that other pleasure does, and that we can actually isolate the electrochemical um, uh, reaction that leads to, that is part of religion. And some say that that, that says that religion, God, etc., is really just an electrochemical reaction, and you're observations, both with Clapton and, and Radiohead, um, may lend some credence to that theory. Do you have anything to say about that? It's a great question. I would say two things. One, I talk in the book about the fact that, uh, at least for me, I don't find myself you know, satisfied with strictly neurochemical explanations of the human experience in the sense that I, I think it's uh, too far reduced for my liking and kind of my own disposition and how I how I uh, see the human experience. There's just so much complexity to it, and and kind of looking at human life as strictly a bunch of uh, or human experience is just kind of chemical uh, firings in the brain doesn't quite sit right to me. I think all of that is very true, and I think it can actually. I think science and faith have a lot more in dialogue and in common than is often sought. But all that to say, I do address that topic in the book, at least briefly, in terms of kind of coming to the conclusion that I, I believe that there's more than just science, that we're not just animals competing for space and resources on the planet, as per Darwin. Um, but all that to say, I do think what that you know is getting after is what I would call longing. Those experiences of music do parallel our spiritual experiences, and for me, that translates as what I would call the imago dei in Latin, the image of God built into us, that we have this sense of longing for the divine, for something transcendent, and I think a lot of people experience that through art, and in that way, our spiritual expression does find itself so often in music. Well, you, you find it in a number of other places throughout the book, and, and, and one scene that you describe was your friend Will, uh, your friend who always seemed to travel with a snake wrapped around his neck right. or his shoulders. <laughs> Voltaire, yes, the Voltaire, snake the named snake, Voltaire, yes. and, that's right. <laughs> and um, apparently one evening after a couple of beers, he asked you, do you believe morality is objective or subjective? And, and that's a question that comes up a lot in this program, um, because it's also a political question too, and I just wondered 
what your your adventures have uh, told you about the objectiveness or subjectiveness of morality? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, and it's such a complex one. I'll answer it this way. After college, or right after college, I volunteered in an orphanage in the slums of Nairobi, and I tell this story in the book. I really struggled with what I saw. I just saw all of this suffering uh, and was so um, just disturbed by a sense of injustice. Why, why would this kind of suffering be allowed? That was part of why I left the church. But strangely, that question, and this is tied to the morality question, is actually what brought me back to the church in the following sense. I left the church, but I found myself asking an entirely different question, which was, what does the alternative to theistic faith look like? What does it look like if I, if I don't believe in God, at least for me? And I didn't like the answer in the sense that, as I said, you know, in a naturalistic worldview, life is just a cosmic accident where, where animals fighting to survive. Uh, and it's very difficult, again, from my perspective, to anchor a sense of justice. Justice, I can't look at that, that AIDS baby and say, that's wrong. It just is. The baby is just a product of survival of the fittest. I can't say there ought to be something better. And that vision just didn't sit right with me at the time, and I talk about that in the book. Um, so for me, I can't talk about justice. For, you know, I can't talk about justice without having to talk about objective morality of some kind. And to talk about objective morality, I think you have to talk about God, at least some sense of providence. It doesn't have to necessarily be rooted in a particular religious tradition. But that was my experience of that question, but it's a really complicated question. I'm obviously just kind of brushing over the top of it. Well, I want to introduce you to the the, the champion of being able to provide great answers to complicated questions, my co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Patrick. Thank you, and thanks for joining us, Andrea. Uh, you know, I think that the uh, your search for understanding God is the exact same search that every single human being goes through constantly. Um, you know, mm-hmm. God does not reveal himself or herself to us <laughs> any longer. I mean, that may have been the case in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It may have been the case in the days of Jesus. But um, in modern times, that's not the case which means that anyone who is honestly a believer understands that you have to struggle with faith. It's mm-hmm. just part of, a, in a sense, that, and that's really the true sign, I think, of a Christian, of somebody who does struggle with faith. That's why we have preachers. That's why we study. Um, so that, that's a natural, um, and it's very much different than those who wrap themselves in the certainty of science, which religion doesn't do and claim that what they believe in is scientific and is absolutely true, which in some cases it's not, or it's certainly not proven. Um, the, um, in a sense, what I see in your, in your experience is similar to sort of a rebellion against very liberal parents. And it reminds me of two books that I've read by two authors, Carl Bernstein, who became famous as the uh, Washington Post reporter who worked with uh, Woodward to expose the Watergate scandal. He wrote a book about his, his biography writes about his communist parents and how he rebelled against them in the 1950s. And David Horowitz, the, uh, who also had a very similar background and who also went through a rebellion. So I don't think that it's an experience that's necessarily exclusive to believing in religion. It has more to do with perhaps your political cultural background that you might have been questioning more than the more you know the more uh, transcendent questions perhaps would I be 
would I be close on that? You know, my experience of uh, of pushing against the tradition that I was raised in, as you noted, a, a lot of us have to go through that coming-of-age experience. And this book um, really details that, that story of, of coming to examine that tradition and trying to figure out, well, what do I believe? Do I want to embrace this tradition? And as you said, that issue of doubt is quite universal. We always think about it. Or we often think about it in narrow terms, but I think it's very universal regardless of what worldview you hold. I think any worldview has a faith component to it in the sense that none of us have definitive evidence for our view. Um, So I I think in that sense, doubt is just a really healthy part of wrestling with the human condition and trying to figure out what we believe. It's a soul-searching process, I think rather than something that's destructive, which is often how it's portrayed in a church community, unfortunately. But I believe it's it's quite constructive and helpful, and that was really a turning point for me in my story, and I talk about that a lot in the book. Now, uh, the uh, Patrick brought up some a scientific study that I think, Patrick, you either are misrepresenting or the scientific study is very flawed if they're claiming that um, both religion and music are as a result of of chemical changes in a part of the brain. Um, no, I think that actually, there's many studies, and uh, it, it can be demonstrated on electron tomography and MRIs that uh, that right. uh, worshiping and singing and playing music generate the same electrochemical activity. Yeah, but I think you're portraying it erroneously. Of course, it results in electrochemical activity. Everything does. But to suggest that, therefore, religion and music and these things are somehow artificial and to use it as an example to prove a materialist conception, which is that everything can be explained as a matter of physical reaction and matter, I don't think these studies even attempt to try to claim that. All they're doing is... Time Magazine uh, for details. And I think if we did, we would find that they're talking simply about the fact that Music and belief in in a creator and other factors result in a reaction in the brain. That doesn't mean or that therefore they are created as a way of resulting in that reaction. And I don't think that these studies claim that, which is a materialist claim. I think that they simply are documenting the fact that we respond. And I would imagine that in the case of music and religion, it's a good response and it's one that's quite empowering to the individual. Uh, but that it's a response. I'll ask Michael Pressinger or Oren Davinsky, who are two of the, the professors who've done some of this work on the air, but that's sort of off the topic of this, conver- of this uh, author here. No, but you, you brought it up as your second point, and yes, we should have them on the air, and I'm sure that they would confirm that this is not, this is not a proof of materialism. And actually, uh, the, and the, same, the same signals are also found in epileptic seizures, too. It's very interesting that the, the three right. generate the same kind of electrochemical responses. That's right, but an electrochemical response doesn't prove that these things aren't true, and I don't think that these authors are making that claim, which I think you are implying. Now, the issue, of course, gets into a question of materialism versus spiritualism, the materialist view meaning that everything can be explained by matter and by physical action, as opposed to that there is that we're more than just a bag of bones and we're more than just a bunch of electrodes, that there is something, that there is a spiritual side to our existence. And I think that um, you get into this in your book, Andrea. What say you? 
Yeah, I do touch on it. I have the uh, <laughs> privilege of being married to a philosopher of science, actually. I wish he was on the phone. Um, at the time in the book, I portray my relationship with him and getting to know him. But we have quite a number of conversations that I portray in the book about some of these subjects. Um, and I, you know, he and I see, um, for the most part, eye to eye on this issue, as I've noted before, in the sense that uh, we we don't find materialism or or what he would call naturalism satisfying or fully um, epistemically uh, explanatory in the sense that it just doesn't fully explain our experience of things like uh, sort of non-explainable experiences like love. How do you explain love? You can you can see neurochemical activity, uh, but it's certainly that's a redu- very um, reduced explanation or reduced. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, a, on the it's, issue. it's much more complex than that, and even kind of looking at the emergence of, if you look alone at the emergence of the brain, for example, you get into some really deep waters and sort of trying to figure out human consciousness and those kinds of issues. I won't go further than that, but I do get into some of these heavy philosophical conversations because they matter, and I think all of us right. struggle with these questions of how do I think about the world around me? Why? How should I believe? Uh, how should I relate to science and faith? And those are some of the the big questions that I try to explore in the book, Faith and Other Flat Tires, and just trying to figure out, is this another flat tire or is this something that I can hang, you know, that I can move forward with? Well, we want to bring in Mike, but I just want to comment that it seems pretty obvious to me that um, something like love, particularly between a man and a woman, does result in certain changes in parts of the brain and even other parts of the body. That's a stimuli, but the love itself is something that is there before these changes take place. The changes don't define the actual um, experience, which transcends that, and I think that's obvious. But uh, let's welcome aboard uh, Michael Wanowitz. Mike? Well, thank you, and nice to hear from Andrea about her particular personal experience. I'm also making an observation that listening to the conversation and thinking about what's in the book and faith and doubt in those issues, that last Sunday uh, on uh, April 15th of this year in the Catholic Church, our particular gospel centered around the scene in the fourth gospel, John's gospel, where <clears throat> the excuse me, the disciples are gathered in the upper room, and Jesus appears to them, and he talks about peace, he talks about giving them the Holy Spirit, And then it mentions that Thomas is not there. So a few days later, Thomas is back with them, and they explain to Thomas that they have seen the Lord. And he says, I will not believe until I can put my hands into his side and touch the nail marks, etc. And shortly thereafter, Jesus appears again, and he looks at Thomas and says, put your hand into my side. Believe, do not be an unbeliever. And I think that story for the last 2,000 years is being told and retold in many, many different ways. And Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen, but somehow have an act of faith. Uh, I do recollect that at the time of my wife's disease and eventual death, in that I was wondering what life was all about, being alone without my love and my family. And 
somehow uh, scripture and those stories have always helped me to re-anchor my life. You know, I couldn't agree more with that reflection. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I, you know, from my side, as I said before, I think doubt often gets stigmatized. But as you noted, all we have to do is look at scripture. When people kind of raise an eyebrow at my uh, (laughs) view of doubt, I just say, hey, open the Bible. Look at Job, Lamentations, the Psalms, Jeremiah, you name it, the New Testament. Doubt is part of faith. It's part of the human experience. And I think... Anger at God is better than indifference toward God. And that image of Job shaking his fist at the heavens and trying to make sense of what we believe and how we believe it. I, I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Flannery O'Connor. I, I would think some of you might be. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. She's a wonderful, wonderful Catholic Southern writer who I just have such affection for. But she talks about that passage in Mark 24, 9:24, where the uh, the father of a demon-possessed child says, "I believe." my unbelief she calls out the foundation prayer of faith absolutely foundational i couldn't agree more with her we're going to take a a quick break Uh, andrea can you stay on for a little while after the break you bet okay we're going to take a quick break to uh, so our uh, radio affiliates can identify themselves you're listening to fairness radio with chuck and patrick it's religion tuesday deacon michael wanowitz is here We are talking with Andrea Dilly about her book, Faith and Other Flat Tires, and we will be right back. Chuck and Patrick, we're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And uh, this uh, segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body without using expensive or toxic drugs. And don't forget, when you go to bartonpublishing.com, the coupon code is FAIRNESS. That not only tells them that they heard, you heard about it from us, but it also gives you a 50% discount. We're talking uh, with Andrea Palpont Dilly. She's uh, produced a new book, Faith and Other Flat Tires, a memoir searching for God on the rough road of doubt. And, and let me say, I, I read this entire book at one sitting. It's a, it is a, it's a narrative. It's a story, and it's a story that'll keep you kind of on the edge of your seat. There's a question in it um, that um, every good story has, and that is she going to get her man? And I'm not going to tell you the answer. And you have to wait to get to the end of the book. But it also it takes you through a lot of adventures. It goes from uh, Africa to Seattle to Texas to the entertainment industry through making documentary films through lots of very strange and wonderful people. And it is the kind of book that if you get it at the airport bookstore 
and you get on the plane, you won't notice that you're three hours late because you'd be so engrossed in the book. So I'm, uh, we're very happy to have her today. We're talking about doubt and is it a, is it a, a path to faith or is it a path to problems? And uh, Andrea, with you, it was a path to faith. But can you understand that, that many people look at the, the question that you've asked here and that is why does God allow suffering and say, you know, maybe there isn't a God or maybe there's a God, but, but she really doesn't pay any attention to this little tiny planet out on the outreaches of this sort of medium-sized galaxy in this huge universe. you ever thought about that? Absolutely. And the truth is, and I hope I you know, am clear about this in the book, I don't come to definitive peace on that issue. I still, I will struggle with that question for the rest of my life, and I think that's true to life and true to any faith pilgrimage or non-faith pilgrimage. Um, and in that sense, I, I hope that I'm very honest about the, the complexity of that issue. I will always struggle with it, and as you said, I think it's just something so universal. Uh, if we didn't struggle with it, I think we would find ourselves um, sort of soulless. <laughs> But as I say in the book, you know, I, I do find myself having to anchor my, my views about justice. I can't even talk about justice without talking about objective morality, and I can't talk about objective morality without talking about some notion of, of providence, and obviously that's a contested philosophical view that I'm throwing out there. Uh, but that's where I came to. It was kind of this half... Um, Half, I don't know if half-hearted is the right word, but I came to some sense of peace in saying, I'm going to bring these questions. They seem to belong most firmly inside of a theistic framework, inside church, inside faith. But those doubts and questions are still there. I don't feel like I have definitive peace. I, I still really struggle with those questions, and I think most people do. Well, I didn't want to give away the ending of the book, but um, uh, <laughs> you're true that most of them do, and, and this might be a... Uh, place where Mike can can jump in, and that uh, the Jesuits, the longtime educators and thinkers in the, in the Catholic Church, um, and I'm a product of Jesuit education, teach you to constantly question everything, including the Catholic Church, and, and, and including asking the kind of questions you you uh, you ask. And uh, I think that's a good exercise. It doesn't always result in the end the ends that the uh, the Jesuit teachers want them to result in, i.e. Um, lots of um, strong Catholics. But I think it's a good exercise. And, and I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Is, were you raised that way, too, to always ask questions, even of the Catholic Church? <clears throat> well, I, I think, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I continue in my, you know, 70s and so forth to be constantly curious in puzzling out different aspects of life. I did not have that Jesuit education per se, uh, but I think I look back to my father, who was a secularist in one point of view, although he was raised Catholic, but he looked at science and technology and philosophy and built into my background a desire to question everything that appears before me. And I think in my study of theology and scripture, especially even today, that even though I read, as I did in church this Sunday, that great story about Thomas, even in the dynamic of reaching and reading that to the congregation, I'm still in the process of saying, what did Thomas really think? And I think that's the essence of being a good student of theology and God is to constantly be aware that God, for me, 
is teaching us in every aspect of our lives, today and tomorrow. Chuck, is that how you see it? Yes, it is. And also, Patrick, you asked Andrea about um, objective morality versus subjective morality, and I think that the underpinnings of Western civilization, of the Judeo-Christian West, uh, of the Greco-Roman West also, is the concept of objective morality, natural law. And I think that that was maybe partially overthrown in the 1960s by, as you say, the sort of the hippie movement, which basically said that um, anything goes, that there is no objective morality. It doesn't matter if you're Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever. It's your right to define morality, and if somebody tells you otherwise, then they're being a bigot that essentially morality originates with the individual and they can create whatever they want and that in fact at the very underpinning of that idea, which I think was the ethos of the 60s, at least the hippie movement in the 60s, not most people, what was, it was a nihilistic view that there is no such thing as morality at all. In fact, that there's no such thing as objective reality. And that runs not only contrary, as I said, to Judeo-Christian understanding, but it seems to me that it just runs contrary to common sense. Well, Andrea, Andrea if I recall, your your friend's answer to that question, or you, you asked your friend that question, was, I think morals are totally a subjective, therefore God is unnecessary. How did you respond to his answer, and, and, and what do you think of uh, Chuck's comments? Yeah, it's such a fascinating question, and obviously I just dip into it in the book, but it's a fascinating scene, both in terms of the story, but also philosophically he asks me that question, and he, you know, as you just noted, um, takes the the, uh, the, the uh, view that morality is entirely subjective and doesn't have any objective underpinnings. Uh, and my response to him is, well, then why do you have pictures? I don't say this in so many. I say this in so many words. Why do you have pictures of starving children pinned up on the cupboards in your kitchen? He had this very robust sense of right and wrong, of justice and injustice. Um, and I basically, in so many words, said, if you want to claim something is just or or unjust, you have to at least consider the possibility that there's a need for objective morality, you're making a, a claim that, that something is objectively immoral and unjust. And then once you do that, you have to at least entertain the possibility of a higher mind. And that's how I phrase it to him. Um, and that's kind of the extent of the exchange. But it's partly fascinating in the book because it in some ways indicates my underlying beliefs, my latent faith. Uh, but it's also fascinating philosophically in terms of this discussion about how we of justice and, and injustice, and I do think it's an impractic, impractical way to live. You said, you know, you used the term common sense. I don't think most people, when you really push them, are willing to actually live out subjective morality because it involves saying that Hitler was just another guy. Most of us aren't willing to say that. Most of us aren't willing to look at an AIDS baby and say, well, you're just a product of survival of the fittest. Get over it, right? Yeah. Um, that's not a really livable, tenable um, worldview from my perspective, so well, I, I would agree entirely. Well, Chuck asked the question, um, what gives uh, people who go through this ethos or, or, or who, who move through the 60s and, and embraced uh, the uh, subjective reality, what gives them the right to define what's moral? And I would ask you the question, what gives churches the right to define what's moral? Particularly since many different religions define morality differently. 
Are you speaking to me? I wasn't sure who yes, the question you, was directed yeah, at. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I would actually revise the question. I don't think um, I don't think that the church is ought to be the institution defining what's moral. Obviously, I think it's partner to and privy to that process. Um, but I would go back to issues of natural law, kind of how God created us, the the, the inborn sensibilities that we have about what uh, how human beings ought to relate to one another. I think the insti- I believe that the church is just a handmaiden to that, and certainly can overstep its bounds in terms of how it defines morality. That's a really, really complex political uh, issue right there. So I think I, I would I would back off in terms of how I even think about the church's role in that capacity for that reason. You know, I would say that the church does not have the right to define morality if their decisions run contrary to the Bible, or if right. their decisions run contrary to, in a sense, the uh, thousands of years of um, trial and error that is based upon biblical understanding and exegesis. In other words, that uh, you know, based upon uh, you know, in, in Judaism, we had the, the Talmudic councils. In, in Catholicism, they have the priests and the popes. In a sense, to simply go against, and uh, to the degree that their decisions are based upon sound biblical principles, you know, if they're not, then they, they don't have a right to do that. You know, they, after all, the church is just made up of people, just like any other organization, so that they don't have the right to just redefine Morality, uh, and they have to show that it's consistent with the Bible, which is the Word of God, according to Judeo-Christian understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that well and I would argue question, that it has and, to be. And I'd ask okay. both of you, and all three of you, this: Why the Bible? Why not the Vedas? Why not the Upanishads? Why not the Quran? Because they're well, Christian. Why the Bible? If you well, were, if you the were, Bible, the right well, no, Patrick. If if you were Buddhist, then it would be the Upanishads. But in this case, we're talking to Christians and Jews. Or we're talking to, in a sense, the United States, which is a putting aside any particular denomination. It is based upon the the biblical uh, ethos. I mean, it just was because it was founded to be, and so therefore we're talking about the Bible. Now, if this country were founded by Buddhists, then we would be talking about the Upanishads. So uh, that's why the Vedas and, and Buddhism. The Vedas. But, uh, thank uh, you, uh, um, Andrea. What do you say to, to, to my question about why you the know. Bible? Yeah, I would echo what was just said, and I would add that I, I I do believe that there are universal sensibilities. C.S. Lewis calls it the Tao, these universal moral sensibilities that cross religious boundaries, that cross worldview boundaries, uh, that most of us, when push comes to shove, can agree upon. Let's not murder our neighbor. Let's not you know. Let's not steal. These kinds of really fundamental moral sensibilities that we all have in common and that I think are inborn. And from my perspective as a religious person are indicative of the fact that I was made in the image of God. I was made in the image of uh, something uh, greater, something fundamentally good. Um, so I, I would appeal to that aspect of, of uh, that question. Well, well, I would agree with you. However, Chuck, I think your answer, uh, which is because this country was founded as, as, by Christians mostly, not completely mostly, and is a Christian culture, then we refer to the Bible if it was founded, or if we were in a Buddhist country, we would refer to the Vedas. Right. That, that to me, is an argument for subjective morality. It all depends no, no, on no, it's where more you're than from. Just... It's more than just founded culturally. It's also our system of jurisprudence, 
our system of understanding, as you said, Andrea, that we are created in the image of God, those are the basic principles that founded the secular freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, you could take a look at, at Buddhist countries, Hindu countries. They have their own ethos, and that's fine. But that is the ethos, and those are the principles, and they are universal principles no, on which this that. country was founded. But they like are also you. derived from the Bible. Mm. Mike, you have a thought on this? Well, just a quick one. There was a book I was reading the other day about the question of, is morality intuitive or rational? And I think the question does raise concern when we look at, for example, youngsters, uh, maybe uh, four months old or maybe 14 months old, who react to certain things around them with a sense of morality. And that's obviously intuition, if you will. But I think it's a combination, and I think... If you go from the Bible, uh, Jews, Catholics, to perhaps a Unitarian Church, which does not necessarily have a particular book to go to, then we do see that combination, I think, of intuition and objectivity. Okay. Um, Andrea, this, this book, one of the reasons why, why this book is, is so enjoyable, and, and I think would make a great movie, frankly, is that you have woven your adventures through doubt with your adventures through love, um, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it's um, it, it's kind of a personal potboiler as well as a, uh, a religious treatise, and that's not an easy thing to pull off. But you pulled it off rather well. Um, but it, it brings up a question of if some place uh, in the middle of the book or in the middle of your your life adventure, say around the uh, the strange and sipid beer party, which is about halfway through the book. You had found the love of your life, and the love of your life happened to be non-religious or Buddhist or whatever. Would that have ended your search, and would you have been satisfied? Boy, that's a really interesting question. Um, You know, part of the challenge in writing this book, as you noted, was to intertwine those two uh, and make clear the fact that my search for love very much traveled through my search for faith in the sense that every person I got involved with had some complex relationship with to faith, whether they were someone that had left the church, which is the case with the character Michael, and also with the character Ty. Those were both figures who had left the church, and I, at the time, really resonated with their broken faith. Um, but the point being, trying to intertwine those two narratives was really challenging, and also keep them separate for the following reason. At the end of the book, I, I hope I make it clear that uh, my faith journey isn't fully satisfied just because I found the right guy. And I think it's easy to conflate those two anytime we we do settle into a stable relationship, realizing that I'm still alone in the universe. I am still responsible um, for my beliefs. I'm still responsible to kind of move forward on this pilgrimage, regardless of whether or not I found, a, quote, the right guy or the wrong guy. Um, and so there, there are two, the journey is kind of, follow each other and they also they converge and they also diverge at some point um and i try to to ride that fine line in the story so it's a tough question though yeah well you, you you've given away the part of the ending of the book but i will tell our our listeners that um she found the right guy but there is a heck of a plot twist in it and i'm not going to tell it will tell you what it is so you really need to to read the book it's called faith and other flat tires a memoir and it's uh, one of the best combinations of a love story and a religious treatise I've ever read, and it will keep you on the edge of your seat and uh, from the minute you pick it up. So, 
we've got a couple of minutes left, and I thought I would uh, 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 give Chuck uh, the last question here. I just want to clarify, Patrick, that when I, I when I say that um, our America is derived from the Judeo-Christian Bible, it's not a matter of subjective when I talk about um, Hinduism or Buddhism being the main um, source of, of, of legality for other other cultures, because I think that the Christian understanding is superior. And I would hope that those countries also embrace, not necessarily in terms of actually converting to Christianity, although I think that's fine, but from a more... Uh, juridical standpoint, from a more philosophical standpoint, they embrace the Judeo-Christian ethos because I think it is a it is a better ethos. It holds up the individual in, in a more proper light in its relationship with other people and with the relationship with God. Uh, Andrea, you've lived in uh, at least Kenya, I know. Um, any 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 final thoughts about that particular issue or about the book in general? Which one? Either one. <laughs> You know, I I would all I would just say in conclusion that I think we're all struggling with these questions and as was noted earlier in the conversation, asking questions is such a an important intrinsic part of the human experience and I would just encourage readers and listeners to keep asking those tough questions. You know, don't don't shy away from them. If you're inside of a, a, a religious tradition, take those questions to your church, take them to your rabbi, your priest, your pastor. Keep fighting Keep wrestling regardless of, of where you end up. I believe that God and his providence honors our honesty regardless of what we believe at any given moment in time. So anyway, I hope readers enjoy the book and find some source of meaning in it. Well, that's it. We, we, I, I, read, I, I read the book. I enjoyed it, and um, I recommend it to everybody, and I want to thank you for being with us, Andrea. Thanks for having thank, me. I thoroughly enjoyed you, it. It was so much fun. Andrea Palpat Dilly, the book is Faith and Other Flat Tires, a memoir. It's available online and in Barnes, Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores around the country. That's it for hour one, but don't go away. We will be back after the news with your comments and also to look at what happened in the world. And we're going to talk about love in hour two. Stay with us. Mm-hmm. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Mm-hmm. Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's Religion Tuesday, and Deacon Michael Wanowitz is here from the Roman Catholic Church in Sharon, Massachusetts. I'm Patrick, Patrick O'Hepernan. I'm in Los Angeles. 
Chuck Morse is uh, co-hosting with me. He's in Boston. It's April 17th, tax day. Remember, today is the day you have to file your tax returns. And incidentally, for those of you who don't know why it's the 17th instead of the 15th, it's because Emancipation Day was yesterday in Washington, D.C. It's one of the three places in the country where Emancipation Day is a federal holiday, and therefore the people who collect taxes weren't at work, so they post, they put it off for a day. And if you're in California, one of our California listeners, today is also the filing day for your California tax returns. I don't know about the rest of the country. Um, we're the only radio program in America that not only tells you that, but that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We are pushing the boundaries of radio here. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio affiliates. You can be on this show. Call us, 424-675-6806. That's 424-675-6806. Email us. And I'm sorry for all those people. I got a whole bunch of emails arrived just at the end of the hour, questions that were addressed to Andrea. So, all I can say is I'm very sorry we didn't get them till after she was gone. Um, buy the book, okay? <laughs> Maybe some of your questions will be answered that way. It's really a good book. Um, email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com, and uh, don't forget our website after the show where you can sign petitions for causes you support. We want to thank our sponsor, bartonpublishing.com, your 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 source of information to keep your body healthy without using expensive drugs or even dangerous drugs. Well, I want to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? I'm pretty good. And I uh, just want to, first of all, correct myself. Um, the uh, the area of research, brain research was not the, hip, hip, the hypothalamus. It was the temporal lobe. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the amendment of the Constitution that I was referring to was the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And I'm sorry I couldn't think of those things in the last hour. And I'm sure we'll get into a conversation which will tell our listeners what that's all about. Well, I mean, where in that does it say that uh, the government has to pay for um, contraception? Well, is my question. Actually, well, actually, and also the other issue you said was it said that it has to pay for uh, or provide uh, um, adoption, I think was the other one. Um, for for our, our listeners who may have just tuned in, uh, we, we were discussing uh, at the beginning of the show the uh, the Catholic bishops are going to launch in, in late June a uh, uh, from the pulpit campaign accusing the Obama administration of infringing on their rights. And, and the two rights thing that are being infringed upon is that uh, they can't receive state or federal money for adoption agencies if they deny adoptions to gay parents, and they are complaining that uh, their employees have to have um, uh, access to contraception. And on the, the latter one, actually, Chuck, you're right. We don't know. We're going to find out from the Supreme Court later this summer whether or not the Equal Protection Clause does uh, does give every woman in the country access to contraception uh, on her employer's insurance, regardless of who the employer is. We don't know that yet. On the That's first right. one, it's pretty well settled that uh, if a, um, a religious institution takes federal or state money, it has to, uh, for a non-church um, uh, process, that is a commercial-type process, which you know uh, adoption is a commercial-type process, it has to abide by the laws uh, of the the state and federal government, and in the federal government, one of the laws is that uh, they they cannot discriminate against people on the basis of gender. That's not only um, a federal law, but it's been uh, upheld under the, the equal protection of the Constitution. 
Well, first of all, Patrick, I don't think that there's anything in the law that says that the government has to give money to the Catholic Church no, or any other institution, and I agree with right. that. I wish they I, and I don't think that the Catholic Church is claiming that the government has to no, give them grants. absolutely not. But I, but I don't think that there's anything conversely that says that the government can't give them grants in, uh, nope. in, within the paradigm of what they're doing in yep. terms of who they choose to have adopt. So. I don't know if there's been, and you say it's in the Constitution. You claim that it's your, your final statement of evidence is your interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. I'm not sure there's been a, a court decision, unless you uh, can cite one, Reed that says that Reed the Catholic... And what does it say? Uh, well, it, it's uh, the Supreme Court ruled that laws arbitrarily requ requiring sex discrimination uh, violated the Equal Protection Clause. And it includes yeah, but that's, I don't think that it's sex discrimination. Uh, you know, if they if they set certain standards for adoption, and I think in the case of the Catholic Church, those standards are that you have to be married. Now, maybe they could run afoul of that law, I suppose, in Massachusetts, because Massachusetts has declared gay marriage as legal. But you know, there's no there's no national law that that says that. I mean, they have a right to say our adoption standards are for married people. Well, and I actually, suppose that you could even argue law. that that's discrimination. No, there is a national law, Chuck, and, and the national law is the guidelines under which uh, funds are dispersed to adoption agencies, and those guidelines uh, uh, require that uh, it, that organizations taking those funds cannot discriminate on the basis of religion, gender, color, or, or sexual discrimination. So if the Catholic Church doesn't want to take the money, it doesn't have to. You're absolutely right. But if the Catholic Church wants the money, it has to follow the guidelines. Patrick, I'm going to go a second. Let's get back on the merry-go-round one more time. The Catholic Church has a right to say that they do not want to have uh, place adoptive babies in homes that in which there's not a married couple. Sure, they can say Regardless that. Regardless right. of whether or not they're you know, religion or, or whatnot, they have a right to say that. They don't have a right to say they're not going to place a home in a black couple's home, you know, which they don't say. But they have a right to set standards upon which they place children in homes. Sure, and their standard course. is that they have to be married. So, therefore, okay. they, uh, they don't have to place a child in a gay married home unless it's probably – you could argue that they do in Massachusetts because the state of Massachusetts recognizes gay marriage as a legal entity. You're, you're so, absolutely and, right, Chuck. Yeah, and I think in that I case of Massachusetts, uh, the, the uh, how, Catholic Adoption Agency simply shut their doors and they moved to another state. So it's not really an issue, but uh, but they do not. But they do have a right uh, to uh, set Chuck, standards gotta, for adoption. We've got to take a break. We've got to take a break real quick and uh, welcome yep. our radio affiliates from Cyber Station USA. <clears throat> it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and it's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida and KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. You can be part of the program. FairnessRadio at gmail.com is one way. The other way is to call us, 424-675-6806. And after the show, don't forget to check out our website, FairnessRadio.com. You can look at the blogs there. You can look at the photographs. You can also sign petitions there. And we're talking about uh, this for the next few minutes, we're talking about 
whether or not the Catholic Church can discriminate against gay couples in their adoption agencies, and Chuck's saying they can't. I completely agree. The Catholic Church can set no, the guidelines can. it wants, uh, but if it's going to take can, federal Patrick. money, it has to follow the federal guidelines. Mm. That's, Patrick, that's the I said that they can discriminate. Yes, they, they can. can. Say, they absolutely can, but not if they take And they can money. take federal money because nope, it's not discrimination. Nope, nope, yes, nope, yes. Nope, 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 except nope, in Massachusetts. Sorry. Except, no, I'm sorry. You're wrong. Except in Massachusetts, and it's a state issue, where because this state recognizes gay marriage as a legal entity, but most states don't, and they can say we have standards for placing adoption, and they are in married couples. Uh, Mike, sorry. what is the uh, Catholic if, if any policy? If that money comes from the federal government and flows through the state to adoption, it does now. they can't do it. You're just wrong. Really? The federal uh, Mike, government the Catholic regulations Church... regarding okay. those, that aid money says you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender. Yeah. You're just wrong Mike, and cannot let's discriminate bring, let's on bring the basis Michael, let's bring of gay You're just wrong on that, Chuck. Yeah, I have a question for Michael Wanowitz. Mike, does the Roman Catholic Church adoption agencies in states other than Massachusetts, do they receive federal grants? Well, or grants I think, from the states that come originally <clears throat> from the federal government. There's, there's right, two right. examples. There's two examples we can look at. One here in Massachusetts, where Catholic Charities and the Archdiocese of Boston uh, took a look at the position of the Catholic Church in saying that uh, a couple, uh, male, male, female, female, uh, whether civilly married or not, were not appropriate to be custodians of a child, and therefore right. adoption of a baby to a situation like that was not permitted within the context of Catholic Charities, and they have walked away from that situation. And in Washington, D.C., a similar kind of situation arose, and again, the position was that Catholic charitable agencies do not condone adopting a child by a couple that's female, female, or male, male. And that's how now, what about, in, what about, Mike, for example, in other states, like, uh, you know, state, I don't know, we can name any state that doesn't legally recognize gay marriage. The Catholic agencies, adoption agencies accept state grants. I don't know if they've ever accepted federal grants anyways, but do they, and if so, do they in those states? That, that, which is where it happens. Does the federal government give grants to adoption agencies? Anyways, I don't think they it do. Gives block grants to states that then distribute it to to. Okay, uh, I think states. it comes. It's subsidiarity, if you will, from the state right. level to the local agency. But so then, I my, know that, my question, my question yeah. to you then is: yeah. in a state that does not recognize gay marriage as a legal entity, do uh, Catholic adoption agencies get grant money? Oh, lots of it. Oh, yeah. Well, I think <clears throat> the point would be that. Whether or not a civil marriage is recognized here, it would be in Massachusetts or not, if the couple, uh, unmarried, let's say, if you will, but female, female, male, male, uh, are looking to adopt a child, then the agency would not be looking to do that. That's right. We got. We know. That's we understand that. A point. That's Catholic agencies do not place children in. Homes where you don't have a married man and woman. That we get. Well, well uh, yeah, my a male, is, female. Right. That's right. Uh, the question, though, is that in states which do not recognize the uh, uh, the uh, gay marriage, do they get state grant money that is block granted from the federal government like other adoption agencies? Because I know uh, the answer is yes, but I want to well, hear you. Well, the answer you is it. not yes, and there's an Illinois court. Um, 
uh, decision, uh, the, the Catholic Adoption Agencies versus the State of Illinois, which was found, in which the judge found that no organization, religious or not, has a right to contract with, with the state. And if it does contract with the state, it has to follow the state guidelines. In this case, the uh, the state of Illinois abrogated a 40-year contract with, with the Catholic adoption agencies because they were not placing uh, children with, with gay couples, and the, and the court case okay. ruled in the state of Illinois' favor. That's yeah. a state decision, but Patrick, you're saying federally, and I'm I think we could point, we could know, you said the Supreme Court. Any of the money flows so we, from the federal government through block Yeah, but grants. we could point to states that do give mm-hmm. grants to adoption agencies that, don't, uh, that, that insist on those stan- they, the Catholic standards. I'm sure we could. Now, they, they, in the state of Illinois, it's a specific state in which a specific case was brought, and the Catholic Church was discriminated against. I get no, they, that. No, they lost. But they the point is, yeah. The but, and I would argue that that's right to contract with the state. And, and I would argue right that that's no, that's right. But I would argue that to single them out is discriminatory. That's my no, opinion. No, they brought the lawsuit. They didn't get singled out. They brought the lawsuit. Stop then they brought it. Up. Then the result of the lawsuit that they brought was that they're being discriminated against. No, in my they opinion. lost the lawsuit. They're not. They did lose it, and therefore, in my opinion, they're being discriminated against, whether they but brought it or not. Constitution of the Illinois State of Illinois. Yes, I think it's discriminating against Catholic uh, charities. Yes, I do. Well, but the point is that there are other states. Yeah, no, it's it's a state issue. The other point I'm making is that there are other states that in which Catholic charities are not being discriminated against, and they're getting uh, these grants. I think that if we went on a state-by-state basis, we would find that there are states that do not discriminate against Catholic uh, adoption agencies. That's well, my I, only I, point, I'm Patrick. I'm looking forward to you producing that information, Chuck. Well, no, you made the charge. No, I mean, I, you have to produce the information. You the said that Catholic yes, you did. did. No, you said that Catholic agencies do not get these block grants in uh, because it's unconstitutional. So I'm asking you to show how they're not because I think they are. It's and I think it, it depends. Who said. If, if that's well, the case, then the Catholic bishops have no complaint against the Obama administration. No, the Catholic bishops issue, are concerned. They are complaining against the Obama administration. Well, they, they're they complaining because so they're concerned. Well, my pick is that they're concerned that the Obama administration is going to further discriminate by encouraging states that are giving these grants to stop doing it. That means the Obama administration is going to further protect money from being being used unconstitutionally. It's a legitimate political concern, and they don't agree with you, Patrick. But but the point is that there are states... It's discrimination, and it's not discrimination. It's protecting the taxpayers' money. In my opinion, it's discriminating. I think it's... Well, that's... You and I have a difference of opinion on that. I think it's discriminating to single them out. But they didn't single them out. They they asked for it. The fact that whether they... No, they're concerned... They asked for it. They brought the lawsuit. Yeah, probably because the state was trying to do this. And they wanted to they wanted to test it in court, and they lost in the state of Illinois. That's right. But I'm sure that it goes on in other states. I would even suggest probably most other states. But you brought the charge, so you're going to have to do the the research. The bishops brought the charge. I repeated it. The bishops are saying they're concerned that that right is going to be taken away. Is what they said. You don't have a right to get a contract from the federal government or from the state government. There's no All right, right. maybe I'm misusing a word. They're, they're, they're concerned that the states are going to take the present situation away, in which they will no longer be getting these grants. Not, so that's why they're getting active on it. Okay. Well, they don't have and a right to the grants. I didn't say they do. I agree right. with you on that. Nobody, has a, nobody in this country has a right to taxpayer money for any social services, actually. That's true. But the fact is that they are concerned that 
their, their Catholic agencies are going to be singled out in other states, and they were concerned that the Obama administration is going to spearhead that effort, and they have a right to that concern. Well, no Catholic agency is going to be singled out. Any agency that violates either state law or federal guidelines w will be told they, they do not have a right to a contract. They may be Catholic. They may be something else. It's not Catholics that are being discriminated against. It's Catholics that are raising the issue. I don't know if it's quite that cut and dry to say that the federal government is saying that the Catholic charities aren't to get grants. I just don't. I mean, that's the opinion of one state. I'm not sure that that's come down quite that definitively. And the federal government does have the option and the leeway to make those guidelines. If they did, then they did. I mean, if they, and, and I think that that's a, that's something that the church is opposing. Yeah. But I'm not sure they have. Well, I haven't seen the actual. You'd have to publish the actual guidelines that the federal government has issued to the states. I don't know if it's quite that simple. Well, being that this is audio, we'll see if we can get an expert on. But right now, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about love. Okay? You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Theologist uh, Deacon Michael Wanowitz here with us. Uh, this segment is being sponsored by Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on how to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive or toxic drugs. Well, we usually focus on, on the relationship of religions, especially Christianity and politics in this particular Tuesday segment. Today we're going to look past our normal boundaries and look at the evolution of human relationships, both in and out of a religious context. Simply put, we're asking the question, is learning to love the basic fundamental religion that gives us hope despite adversity and inequality? Our next guest, Oliver Dehem, is a success at many things. He's a fighter pilot. He was, he was a skier a hospital CEO. He's also failed at a few things, failures that led him into alcoholism. His trip back from the failures, including asking the question, is love the purpose of our existence? He puts, he puts the struggles into a new book to, called To Find the Way of Love. Oliver, this is a extremely interesting and somewhat exhausting and highly addictive book, and I want to welcome you to Fairness Radio to tell us all about it. Welcome to Fairness Radio. 
Oliver? Hello. Hello, hi. Uh, welcome yes. to Fairness Radio, Oliver. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. As I uh, as I was saying, this is a, a very interesting book, and in mm-hmm. so, some ways kind of an exhausting book, because you, you cover a lot in... Uh, uh, in 180 pages, um, you want to. It's kind of an addictive book too. It's one of the books that you want to go back and read various parts of over again because you want you know there's more there than you saw the first time. So, I wonder if you could give our uh, our our listeners kind of a little thumbnail of uh, to find the way of love. Well, several life experiences I had. You mentioned I was a fighter pilot in the Navy, and also I was a CEO of hospitals. And also my study of history and recovery from alcoholism through Alcoholics Anonymous all led to some fundamental conclusions. The most important one is that relationships are the most important elements in our lives. And the important elements or characteristics of healthy relationships are freedom and equality between the people involved. Unhealthy relationships. Hello? Hello. You used uh, the terms freedom and equality a lot throughout the book, and I wonder if you'd, you'd explain to our listeners what do you mean by freedom and equality in relationships and, and why that's so important. Well, freedom of relationships, part of the most important element is the equality between people in a relationship. The equality constrains the freedom because you cannot act, you know, unilaterally you have to consider the other person and that's what I mean by freedom in a relationship it's not uh, it's not you know unbridled individualism well I'm mean, it's concerned it's concerned for the others you you write that um, as you said relationships are the most important elements of our lives for them, we bring our personal feelings, our desires, and our messages from our senses to be melded with feelings, desires, and sensory messages from the other person. This is yes. not a simple process, but the way of love to no. make it easier. When we promote freedom and equality in relationship, differences be- between individuals become unimportant. Um, could you kind of expand on that a little bit? When you say the differences become unimportant, are you talking about just romantic relationships, or, or what relationships are you talking about here? No. For example, one of the most difficult uh, relationships to achieve, in which to achieve freedom and equality is between the parent and the child. Uh, parents, you know, have a, have a hard time, you know, dealing with the equality of their children. But we actually learn from our children if we're smart enough to observe what they're doing and listen to what they say. How does does, does the way of love, does love and relationships compare with, intersect with, or possibly replace religion in our lives? I think it supports uh, any system of belief. Uh, I think part of the problem with we are enduring in civilization is governments and religions which are founded to promote the common good, you know, suffer from uh, the fact that they're organized as hierarchies where the organizational structure, you know, is one of inequality, you know, people being controlled from the top. 
And control is not a characteristic in a healthy relationship. It is a characteristic. You know, it's one of the main characteristics of unhealthy relationships and especially hierarchies. And, and you, of course, you, you write about that. In fact, you say that um, uh, control of wealth is so powerful because it controls the livelihood of individuals, and you point out that originally wealth was food, etc. Do, do you see yes. do you see any kind of problems uh, with religion and control? Uh, yes. I, my personal experience, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, but I was not able to accept the control that was imposed you know, by uh, some of the dogmas of the church. I remember when I went to uh, high school, I wrote an essay. Uh, <clears throat> the title was, What Really Matters? And my answer was, what really matters is what a person believes. Well, that was not an acceptable answer, you know, in the Catholicy theology. So, <laughs> I had the same experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, what you said was that... Um, um, this bestowed power on wealthy individuals to determine the relative importance of other differences, such as religion or politics in society's hierarchy. Well, religion, particularly something like the Catholic Church, is a very hierarchical system. Um, yes. Are you, you arguing that hierarchical systems such as religion impose too much control and interfere with um, freedom and equality in uh, relationships? Yes, they do. I think the... Uh you know, problems that some of the great religions are having right now, both Islamic, uh, Christianity, and Judaism, you know, stem from uh, inequality, you know, in the religious hierarchy. That is, inequality uh, between those in the hierarchy and the faithful, is that what you mean? Yes, and also, uh, you know, the clergy uh, tend not to listen to their denomination to their constituencies well we, we yeah. have of course we have a member of the clergy uh, with us today but but let me introduce you to um, uh, my friend and colleague um, uh, Chuck Morris and then also to my friend and colleague Deacon Michael Wanowicz. Chuck <coughs> thank you Patrick thanks for joining us Oliver thank uh, you Chuck my, my pleasure <coughs> my initial thought is that um, <coughs> excuse me is that religion cannot impose anything on anybody and doesn't uh, actually impose any sort of a value. Only states can, uh, can impose something on somebody. Now, that doesn't mean that states or governments don't from time to time use religion in the process of their secular control over people, and that religions in particular situations as made up of people aren't complicitous in that, uh, in that arrangement. But religion itself doesn't impose anything. I mean, the, the uh, Catholic Church, I mean, in this country, you can come and go. You don't have to be a Catholic. Um, it's, it's a free expression. I mean, the, the whole principle of Christianity is that it's a personal relationship between an individual and Christ. It's not an imposition. Um, you you uh, look to it as a set of standards that you can measure your life against, but you don't have to observe it. The only time you have to observe something by force is when the state does it. That's the only distinction I'd make there. Well, I don't want to, you know, mince words with you. 
you know, debate, you know, semantics, but I think, you know, the teachings, you know, of the religious um, individuals uh, are very influential in the behavior, especially of children. And right. I was just reading the other day in Ireland, there's just a movement now to free the educational system there from the church. Well, the church was exercising you know, tremendous influence you know, on the behavior of children and uh, adults as they grew up. Well, I would think that would be good. And also it's influence, not force. Only The only time you can have uh, coercion of any sort is when you have a legal entity, a state, doing it. The church can influence, and I think the influence is for the better, putting aside particular problems, of course, that the church and other religions have regarding bad people in it. But putting that aside, the influence is influence. It's not force. And I would argue that in the Christian sense, it's a good influence. Now, Islam is another story. That is, as a component of their religion, they do call for literal state control. I mean, the religion and the state, there's no difference. That is a state uh, attempt to subdue the planet. I mean, that's that's the basis of that faith. But Christianity is not that. I mean, there's been, it's, there's been uh, departures from it in history, but those are exceptions, and those are misinterpretations of that faith. Well, one of the most egregious abuses of the power that the Catholic Church exercised was with in with the complicity of the state was the Inquisition. You know, it's right, but it's, some... it, that's right, but that's an exception. I mean, that's that's not like what we've seen in the 20th century with the communist and the Nazi movements, which are anti-religious. Um, you know, those are there certainly are you know things you could point to in history, uh, and uh, and even then, I think that the Spanish Inquisition has been exaggerated in terms of what it actually was. Uh, Mike, we've had a lot of comments here about the hierarchy of the Catholic Church being uh, distant from the uh, the people in the pews. Do you have anything to say about that? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I think the um, the point that Oliver and many people would make is that perhaps in a parallel way with family structures, there was a time when parents looked at their children uh, as being at a point where they need some direction, they need some education perhaps, uh, to learn how it is to life can be for them. And I think when the church over the years has looked itself from the hierarchical point of view down to the, quote, person in the pew, and even trying to explain scripture and so forth, there is the sense that the church does uh, look down, if you will, and I think that's a kind of phraseology, looking down on the people in the pews, we have seen society-wise uh, a big effort on the way of the church to listen to, the to people in the pews more and to allow for participation by people in terms of how the church will be run. Uh, it isn't a complete revolution in terms of who gets to decide what to do, but it's like family structures too. When somebody is 21 or 22, uh, in a family, they may look to their mom or dad and say, you know, <clears throat> I finally realized over the years that I don't have the same sense that you do about life, and I choose to make a different direction. Sometimes it happens in the church, too. Mm -hmm. Well, 
you're, you're touching on what I think is a more important you know, element in our lives, and it's a relationship, and that is between parent and child. Mm-hmm. And I still think that parents are one of the most important relationship, you know, that children can have. And, and that, that being the case, do, do you see um, th- that religion or, re- or religious hierarchies get in the way of um, the freedom and equality in the child-parent relationship? Uh, they can. Uh, what your your colleague was was saying was, you know, influence of religion, and I think. The parent has to teach the child how to come to terms with a, a belief in a value system, you know, which is coherent and supports his lifestyle. Chuck um, or Mike? Well, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, that's what a family does. That's what parents do, and that ultimately the child grows up and um, takes in those lessons and then makes up their own decisions as an adult, yes. based on those things. So, sure. Yes. Um, religion, I think, has a positive influence on it. Hopefully. It provides a, it provides a tool for parents to uh, to teach their children basic, uh, you know, codes of morality and whatnot. And also, I think that in the broader sense, you talk about loving relationships, not necessarily romantic, but... Um, the Bible gets into this in the book of Leviticus. It talks at length about proper relationships between people and what are improper relationships between people. And in a, in a mirrored sense, it talks about proper and improper relationships between nations. Um, and I think that in, in the context of that, it's actually quite liberating because within those relationships, it doesn't talk about inequality. In fact, I think the, the equality aspect is assumed that they are equal and balanced relationships, um, that being because the Bible doesn't get into that. It just simply states what is proper and improper. Once the relationships are noted to be proper, then it's up to the people to voluntarily enter into them based upon hopefully self-interest and self, uh, you know, whether it be personal or professional. Well, Oliver, um, you, t- you talk about... Uh that we have the ability to transform society and that, uh, that love can transform society. And you say that we don't need a government or a religion or any other organization or institution to help us. Uh, plus, you can you also say that um, only individuals can take these actions. What kind of transformation do you think society needs right now? And, and how can uh, love, loving relationships make that transformation? You mentioned a, little, a few moments ago about the you know, relationship between nations, and I think it's just as true for nations to abide by what I call the way of love, that is freedom and equality in their relationships with other nations. And that would be a real transformation you know, from what we have today, where it's the you know, haves and the have-nots. Uh, you know, people fight wars. You know, over resources, and uh, World War II was one example. Of, it was precipitated, you know, by scarcity of resources on the part of one country, you know, and wanting the resources of other countries. I don't know if I agree with that. 
Yes. Well, I'm, uh, well, how can we transform this society? You're arguing for transformation of society. Uh, how do you see it should be transformed? Well, as I say in the book, I don't believe it will be transformed by, you know, hierarchies. I mean, hierarchies are the disease of civilization today, and individuals are the only ones who can change that by improving their personal relationships, their families, their friends, where they work, their employer. Uh, and if enough people, you know, adopt, you know, that attitude of promoting freedom and equality in the personal relationships, that'll spill over into society as a whole. So you you actually see, in, in, in fact, you say this in the book, you see inequality as the, uh, uh, the basis of the problems in our society. And uh, developing these relationships is, is a way to solve that, that inequality. Um, yeah, we, we support... I'm amazed at how much, how complicit I am in supporting inequalities, you know, in relationships. You know, the phrases, you know, to be better than, to be worse than, instead of being equal to. Teaching equality is, is very difficult. We're used to, you know, comparatives where something is not as good as or better than and so forth. Uh uh, that kind of thinking. I think that in the case of personal voluntary relationships, a healthier relationship is one in which, if not more equal, at least if there is inequality, the inequality is accepted and understood and uh, and agreed to. But in general, inequality is natural to man. We're not equal. You know, we're, we're born equal. We're all equal in, in terms of in the real sense. We all die equally. But we're in the short lifetime of ours, we're of different levels of skill, we're of different levels of accomplishment, and we're not going to that's, be equal. That's, that you said the right word. We're different. Well, but we're different and we're, we're not, not equal. Like, for example, I like to, Patrick, could, I'm sure, can confirm, I occasionally like to dabble in science on this program and what is true and what isn't. But my ability to understand science is not equal to Albert Einstein's. You know, I mean, it's just we're not equal. We have different skills and different levels of skill, and that's part of a freedom. I mean, it's just recognizing human nature. I'm not going to be as good a fighter as Charles Atlas or as a, or as Muhammad Ali if I got into a boxing ring. We're not equals. I mean, I'm just saying that people develop different skills, and they, you know, and there's no such thing as absolute equality. It's a false idea. Now, I think that the society that most fosters greater equality is a free market system where people are free to find their own levels. And I don't think that necessarily being richer or more materially successful makes somebody better at all. But in the bigger sense, we're all, nobody's equal to someone else. It's impossible. We're all different. We're all separate. We're all at different levels of success or failure at any one time in our life. Right. You're constant. You're concentrating on, on the you're concentrating on the differences that divide people, not the equality that unites uh, them. Uh, Oliver, we, we have to take a quick break, uh, about uh, thirty seconds, and uh, just so our stations can identify themselves, and then we'll be right back and continue this conversation. Don't go away. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. <laughs> Thank you. 
listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates. We're uh, This is Religion Tuesday. We're talking uh, with Oliver Diem. The book is To Find the Way of Love. We're discussing uh, inequality and equality. And uh, Chuck has just pointed out that uh, many people are une- are not equal to other people, and um, we're going to ask Oliver what he thinks about that. Are we talking about differences, or are we talking about inequality, uh, Oliver? <clears throat> well, he was speaking about differences, and, you know, there are enormous differences in circumstance and talent and abilities, but it doesn't mean that people can't be equal. Democracy itself, you know, the United States is a demonstration of people, you know, who are come from very diverse backgrounds and, and still maintain diversity, but they can still cooperate. And yeah, but they cooperate from unequal positions. Like, for example, I'm not going to be able to hit a baseball as well as Kalia Stremsky could hit it in his prime. I probably couldn't hit it as well as he does even now, even though he's retired. He was a childhood hero of mine. We're not equal. We can cooperate. In fact, the best means of, of, of having a society that fosters cooperation is a free market system because people then have a self-interest in cooperating with each other and working with each other, either professionally or personally. And that's why a society like that has less corruption and it has more loyalty as opposed to a more collectivist system, which is, it has no loyalty on the part of people because there's no incentive to cooperate when the government forces you to do it. We have an email well, on, on In my that. book, I, I talk about the fourth sector, okay, which mm. I think is a very good example of where differences are ignored on the, you know, on the, in favor of you know cooperation. And I mentioned a very unique corporation in Spain, the Mondragon Corporation, which is founded on the belief that you know all wealth is created by workers. And therefore, workers own and control the means of production and the distribution of wealth in that corporation. It's one of the most successful corporations in Spain. It's the seventh largest corporation there. They employ 86,000 people. They have a commitment you know, to job creation, which I would like to see more of in this country. And it's a cooperative and that's fine. As a boss, they, they do. They structure their company voluntarily, and they have a right to do that. And uh, I'm sure that they don't hire more people than they can uh, justify in terms of what their production is. But uh, yeah, all corporate, most corporations are largely owned by workers, whether the worker being the CEO or whether it be the the line guy. I mean, this is a private arrangement of people who come together and cooperate. And they, in order to produce a good or a service, and everybody has their role in it, those roles are not all equal. They're all different, and they're also unequal. I mean, the guy on the line who's assembling the automobile is not equal to the CEO because if the CEO goes away, the company could fall apart, whereas if the guy on the line goes away, they can you're, find you're someone defend- else to do that job. You're defending hierarchy. You're saying that hierarchy creates wealth. No, it doesn't. People do. And they do it on the basis of cooperation, depending on the level right. of you know coercion that has been exercised. Nobody uh, you know, can act you know freely even in a free market economy. They well, have, I'm they have a hierarchy, hierarchy in a in a free market context where you don't have government <laughs> control exists voluntarily and it can play a role. 
it only becomes a problem if you have government coercion, like, for example, in a communist country when the state itself becomes the corporation and it abolishes unions and corporations because everybody has to be de facto equal. That, in, you know, even though it may not call itself a hierarchy, it absolutely is in the legal sense. In a private sense, yeah. hierarchies can exist and people can come and go, and, you know, it's much more of a free system. Uh, Joan, we have some emails here. Um, we have one email from um, Sylvester Ramon in Seattle, and Sylvester says, Chuck's wrong. Most corporations are actually owned by stockholders, which may or may not be the employees. Uh, mm -hmm. Then Agar Mentalia in St. Paul says, uh, family and parental love is different from friendship and national love. Actually, some love can be negative, like nationalistic love. Look at what Hitler did with the German people's love of their nation. Love isn't necessarily the solution to everything. Oliver, response to that? <clears throat> love, if it's expressed as freedom and equality in relationships, you know, you would not have that problem. You know, Hitler would not arise. Uh, his power was founded on inequality. You know, the hierarchy of the Nazi parties that he created. So you would could I respond briefly, Patrick? I don't me? know if this, uh, could I respond also? Yeah, sure, yeah. I, I don't know. I have no idea whether this company in Spain has shareholders or not, but shareholders also are people. They may not be working, but they play an integral role in a company being able to raise enough capital to do what they do. So all of the you arrangements think, think, and relationships are voluntary. Do you think the shareholders, as they do in the Mondragon Corporation, they control and approve the executive compensation? Now, do you think that the shareholders of the corporations, of the CEOs who has such horrendous, you know, pay packages in this country, uh, would have agreed to that? Probably not, and they should. As far as Hitler goes, that's a hyper-nationalist nanny state that takes care of everybody. It, takes, it provides welfare, it provides health care, it provides education, it provides national policing, and that's completely contrary to the free market association of people who form their own oh, private what, hierarchies. But, well, we're, what country we're, we're referring to love is... We're talking about Nazi socialist Germany. State that the, the email referred to a yes. type of love which can have negative consequences, and the question to the author here is, when you're talking about love, are, you're excluding love of nation. Is that true, no. Oliver? No, love of country, you know, is a you know very real and can be positive influence. It can also be distorted, you know, as it was in Nazi Germany. Okay, so that's distortion. Um, Cutie Pie eight seven nine eleven at AOL writes, um, both of you are correct, <clears throat> and I guess he's referring to um, uh, Chuck and, and Oliver. We are all different, but and our society values some differences more than others. It's society that makes us unequal, not our differences. There are different societies that 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 value different things differently. Yes, that's true. But it's society that that causes inequality, not our differences. What do you think of that, Oliver? I think societies reflect the relationships of the citizens and if the citizens believe in equality with each other 
the government and that society will reflect that. Well, I think that the, that the emailer there is referring to the fact that say our society uh, values a an actor a lot uh, monetarily more than it values say a teacher, and that we provide more resources to an actor than a teacher, and that actor then becomes uh, 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 more equal, if you might put it that way. Um, I think that's what they were referring to. And yeah, we have Patrick. I think that just, if I could just one. briefly respond. Yep. There's a difference between love of country and love of government. And I think that the Nazi movement was a love of a hyper-nationalist government. Uh, basically, we all have a certain love and respect for America, but not if the government becomes oppressive and oversized and starts interfering in our private lives and in our right to form our own associations, whether they be hierarchical or otherwise. You're, you're absolutely right, Chuck, and, and uh, I think uh, that that's, that's a very good point. If our government starts wars that aren't just or, or uh, uh, destroys the middle class, we also have a right to love our country but not our government. Um, uh, we have right, a, a we have here from uh, Los Angeles saying, I think Chuck means that we're all entitled to be treated equally, but we're not all equal by most measures. Is that an accurate statement of your what you said, Chuck? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we are all born equal. We're all equal in the real sense because we're all human beings and we're all created in the image of God. But we have different levels of skill, different levels of accomplishment. That's just part of nature. It's not the state creating those things. And by the way, if the state is going after any class of people, which is a very authoritarian idea, then it's it's something that that should be of concern to anybody, and that has a, that involves state interference in people's private uh, business activities and lives. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and I wish that the uh, the state would stop going after the middle class, which it generally does under Republican administrations. But that's for a different yeah, sure. show, not this one. We're talking about mm -hmm. love here. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, Oliver, can can inequality coexist? with a a religious state religious faith uh, uh well that is um, a, a a country that is very religious not a state religion but a country that is very religious <laughs> like ours for instance yes as i said i think that freedom and equality in personal relationships will support any belief system i don't know of any religion that uh does not support freedom and equality uh, I, I want to ask uh, Mike, uh, Mike on that, uh, because as, as we've discussed, the church has a, 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 a very extensive hierarchy. Uh, where is, Mike, where does the church come, come down on the questions about equality that we've been asking, uh, that Oliver asks in his book, too? Um, does the church see different kinds of people as, as, as unequal? Well, I think Chuck used the word skill and i think that's a question of who has the right talents perhaps or skills to do a particular function and again there's much hue and cry about the fact that men and women do not have the same opportunity perhaps in the catholic church and yet it does come down to except in the case of consecration ordination and leadership that throughout the whole catholic christian community People do have that potential, depending upon their skill set, to do the kind of thing that they can have an ambition for. Uh, so it's, well, it's kind of a tricky, tricky question socially. 
but it also it does not extend to the equality of men and women in the uh, church hierarchies. True. Uh, and we I have think an, that, uh, I need I, a question here from an email or taxi guy who wants who wants you, Oliver, just to define what you mean by equal. Equality is a balance of power in a relationship. If there's a decision to be made between a husband and wife, there should be an equal participation in shaping that decision. That's what power is, the ability to control you know, activities that will affect the other person in the relationship. And that could be you know, a, a partnership, a family, a state, a country. Okay. Now, now, go on. You were mentioning uh, the situation with women in the Catholic Church. Excuse me. You you were you were mentioning the situation with women in the Catholic Church. Yes, in any uh, any religion, you know, are they equal to men? You know, in terms of participation, you know, within that hierarchy, I don't think so. And and you you think that that has, is a negative influence on society? I do, because I think that uh, the male-female relationship is the most important relationship in civilization, and it should be reflected, you know, in equal participation in all of our institutions. And you know, uh, I think that the, the that it's it is an advantage. Obviously, the best relationship between a man and a woman is one where they're on equal footing, and the best way to, and that's not a perfect thing. Uh, there's no business of trying to enforce it. We should encourage it, but uh, the only, the, the really, the only way it ultimately happens is in a context of freedom, where people have the right to form those sorts of relationships. I mean, as far as the Catholic Church having a negative influence because women can't become priests, uh, I don't think so. I mean, that's more of a religious functional thing where people, for whatever reason, the tradition and Judaism is the same. Um, they want men to actually perform certain religious functions that they say are exclusively for men. That doesn't mean that women aren't equal. Catholic women and Jewish women are just as equal as men, certainly in the family relationship and also professionally. Uh, you uh, you write on, on this topic that... Um uh, the natural differences created by migration, agrarian civilization, and acquired wealth ought to be celebrated in relationships. However, some men exploited them to achieve dominance in society. This was a small step beyond the dominance they had exercised over women and other men in hunter-gatherer bands, but with vastly more important consequences. It set up a yes. sequence of conditions that degrades the quality of human relationship and leads to evil, and then you have a chart there uh, in which you show how that uh, that works. And you go on to say, love, freedom, and equality do not appear in this scenario, nor could they. Um, so uh, are you saying that it's, that when you, you have this kind of dominant relationship, and, and we're talking about men over women in this case, that it makes love very difficult or impossible to actually exist in the relationship? Uh, yes, it, it tends to divide, you know, on an emotional basis or even on a practical basis, you know, the two people, the husband and the wife. Any, any thoughts, uh, Chuck and Mike, on that? Yeah, I think that men and women were less equal in prehistoric times because the man was required to go out and hunt and, and protect the woman who had to be home to take care of the children. 
And I think that has lessened as we've become more modern and that there is that that's no longer an issue. So it's not that something I, is being... I, I think it still is an issue. Well, it Very is, much but the point life. is that it, this isn't something that was invented by men. It isn't something that is being put together by men to exploit women. It's something that existed in the nature of, of human existence up until, you know, maybe about a millennia ago, and then we started to move away from that because we're now in a society that is more free and more prosperous so that people really can be equal. There is no more of a need for men to go out and hunt and to protect women who are home with the children. You know, you have, a, you have systems of law and order. So it, it has more to do with an advancement in our understanding of how to govern ourselves and how to, you know, implement things. It's not something that was invented. In other words, this isn't invented by men as a secret way to exploit women. And, of course, today we, we see that uh, slightly over 40% of all married women actually support their husbands. So right. society's changing a lot. That's right. But we yes. still have situations in the, in our society in which women are paid less than men for the same job and in, in which uh, abusive relationships occur and are not prosecuted to the degree they're supposed to. So we still have these inequalities in our society. On both sides. And, and yeah, I mean, that's just we're imperfect beings. This is all a move toward individual freedom, individual identity, and this is something that's continually evolving in the real meaning of the term. Well, Oliver, we're going to uh, let, let you have the last word because we're coming up on the end of the of the program. Um, and I just want to remind our listeners that the book is To Find the Way of Love, The Purpose of Our Existence. It's available online. It's also available in bookstores, too, isn't it, Oliver? Yes, it is, Amazon.com and also uh, from the author, uh, author House, the publisher. From the author House. Uh, is there a website there? Well, my website is www.tofindawayoflove.com and if the readers or listeners want to learn more about it they can go to that website and there's a lot more information you know, on it and, and let me just say to our, our listeners this is one of those books that you read and then you go back and look at sections again because it kind of unpeels like an onion and you think you think you understood everything, and then you read something else, and you want to go back and uh, and take another look. So it's, it's a book that will will hang around on your mm. desk for a while. I, I really recommend it. It's uh, to find the way of love, the purpose of our existence. The author is Oliver E. Deham. Oliver, I want to. I thank appreciate you. that description. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, like Henry Kissinger used to say, it has the added advantage of being true. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to thank you for uh, being mm. with us today, Oliver. Thank you, Oliver. Mm. Thank, thank you. you. I enjoyed it. I, I'd you. like to do it again. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oliver right. DM, the author of Define, Define the Way of Love. Well, that's it for today. You've been listening to the mm. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. You can uh, visit us at uh, fairnessradio.com. And don't forget, if you're listening on the uh, Cyber Station Network, to stay tuned for Mike Siegel. Tomorrow we have a great show coming up. Jim Dean is going to be on the show. He's going to tell us about his plan to overturn Citizens United. This should be a hot conversation. So good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thank you. And thanks for joining us, Michael Wanowitz. You're welcome. You're welcome.